This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club podcast. I love this one, man. If you're listening over on our regular For the Love podcast feed, welcome you guys. This is something that we do in book club. Every month we get a dedicated interview with our author of our book that month. And it is obviously one of my favorite things. Of course it is. I'm the one who gets to do the interview. So having read these books that we love and that we have processed together and that we have circled around and we've had a million conversations through, then at that point to get to interview the author and tell her, mostly her, we almost almost exclusively feature female writers, but is the best. So welcome aboard. Hey, if you'd like to know a little bit more about book club, jog over to jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We have the best time and we'd love to have you. All right, you guys, I'm so honored to introduce you to Suleika Jawad. There's no way I'm saying it as beautifully as it should be said, but Suleika Jawad. So she is obviously an award-winning journalist. She's worked with Vogue and Glamour, Women's NPR, all of it, all of it, all of it. She's a speaker. She's a cancer survivor and patient who has inspired, I don't even know, millions of people with her story. So Suleika is the author of the very highly anticipated memoir, Between Two Kingdoms. And it chronicles her journey through cancer diagnosis and treatment at age 22, by the way. So she's really young. And then her subsequent road trip across the country to connect with friends and family and people who had written her along the way. And so it's honest. It's, if you can believe this in parts, really funny. It's got so much heart and truth and wisdom. And Suleika explores really from a 360 perspective, how illness and recovery transforms us. And then the just, importance really of connection and community and transparency and authenticity. Although her story is hers, it is also ours. Who among us does not understand suffering 
or something that has happened that we did not see coming, rather any kind of loss or change or illness or whatever, and then had to figure out what to do with it. So I tell her this in the interview and I'm like, we just relate to this. So like, like we relate to your story, even though we were not a 20, you know, early something cancer patient traveling across the United States. It doesn't matter. Like all, all that she shared with us about her relationships and her faith and her optimism and her pessimism. And it it just all felt true to all of us. And so I would like to say absolute gold star to Seleka because we did this interview. She looked like a million dollars, which you can always see on my YouTube channel. And she tells me before we start recording, she's like, oh, just fun fact. And I'm sorry in advance. I have the flu. I have the flu. If you hear me sounding terrible or sniffing, that's why. But I did not want to miss this interview. And I was like, are you kidding me with this? (laughs) So. Not only is she beautiful and brilliant, she did our interview literally sick. So I loved her. She's so warm and just lovely to talk to and to listen to. You're going to love this interview, you guys. So without any further ado, I'm so pleased to share this conversation with the extraordinary Suleika Jawad. All right. So like I have been just looking so forward to this interview. I I literally wish that I had one nickel for every time I have told somebody that it's imperative that they read your book or I'm not going to speak to them ever again. You're just a marvelous person and a marvelous writer. What a storyteller. I mean, this is this is your work. You found it. Thank you. This is what I've been looking forward to all week. So I'm excited to dive in. Let's talk. I have a million things I want to talk to you about, but I want to talk to you first, like as a writer, before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of your actual story. I loved reading this as a writer, thinking about your journey, obviously, as a daughter and as a girlfriend and as a patient and as a course, but loved really thinking about it as I'm going to start a blog. I'm going to correspond like the old days, like the old fashioned days and write letters. And then ultimately I'm going to write a book. That is a heavy lift. So I'd love, (laughs) I'd love to talk to you first about writing, like how writing has been a part of your world forever. Did you see this coming? I know you didn't see the story coming, but did you see writing a book coming? All of that. I'd just like to hear a little bit about the writer in you. I have loved to write from the time I was old enough to hold a pen. But as the child of two immigrants, I think I felt this self-imposed pressure to do something more practical with my career. And I didn't really know that pursuing writing as a career was an option. So when I graduated from college, I thought to myself, maybe, you know, I could go into journalism, but most likely I'll go to law school. And so my first job out of college was as a paralegal at a law firm in Paris. And ironically enough, it's not until I got diagnosed with leukemia when I was 22 and found myself 
back in my childhood bedroom with its embarrassing pink walls and dusty boy band posters and really unable to fulfill any of the self-imposed expectations that I had on myself, that I felt a freedom to explore my creativity, which is really sad when you think about it, you know, that it took something so dramatic for me to feel liberated to pursue that passion. And writing for me originally was something that I did for myself in the privacy of a journal. It's not something I did with an expectation of outcome or of sharing it with the world. But little by little in the course of writing in a journal, in the course of reporting essentially from the front lines of my hospital bed, although I didn't think of it in those terms, of course, at the time, I slowly started to find my voice. And I was always someone who was interested in telling other people's stories that had never occurred to me to write in the first person. But I became interested in that blurred boundary between memoir and journalism. And in the way that when we write, you know, from the first person, the I can become a you and then a we. And so that's slowly how I started to write. And my very first foot in the door gig was the opportunity to write this New York Times column called Life Interrupted, which I launched for my hospital bed, which sounds really exciting, but was also really terrifying as someone who had never been published before and had written a self-published blog, which is what had led to this New York Times column. So... You know, it was an amazing opportunity. It opened so many doors. I think the most important of which was the opportunity to correspond with some of my readers who were enduring their own life interrupted moments. And that really, you know, at a time in my life where I was essentially bubble girl and stuck in a hospital room allowed me to travel outside of that fluorescent room to you know, have the important realization that I was not the only person locked in suffering and, you know, exploring the big questions that come with that. But as far as the book, I think, you know, for me, what I think of is that, that famous Toni Morrison line where she says, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And that's really how I arrived at Between Two Kingdoms. I was emerging from four years of treatment and I had expected to feel victorious and overflowing with gratitude to be alive, which, you know, in some ways I was. And I had expected to kind of quickly and organically resume my life, but that didn't happen. I was grieving so many things. I was grieving a relationship that had folded under the pressures of illness. I was grieving the friends I'd made in treatment who had died. I was grieving my sense of identity, the possibility of motherhood as I understood it because my chemotherapy had left me infertile. And I was struggling to move forward. And so, you know, I sought out books that talked about the aftermath of trauma, like an illness, but I wasn't finding much. And I felt a lot of shame within that. I felt like I should somehow be doing recovery differently when instead I was lying on my couch feeling more depressed than I'd ever felt in my life. 
And that's really where this seed of Between Two Kingdoms was born, was wanting to write into that shame, wanting to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, about what it means to pick up the pieces of your life and to have to move forward when it's been imploded by, you know, the ripcord of a diagnosis or some other kind of heartbreak or loss that's brought you to the floor. Mm. I can only imagine. When did Between Two Kingdoms come out? Excellent question, because it feels like it's been a hundred years, but it's been three, two years, two years. Oh yeah. Gosh. Exactly. Two years. Time's weird. (laughs) Time is very weird. Two years. I can only imagine how much feedback you have received from people who deeply experientially understand exactly what you just described. And maybe it's from an illness, but maybe not. I mean, it's ubiquitous. This thing that you just explained this suffering And then expectation of what healed looks like. And then what some sort of return to normal life is going to be, whatever that even is. I mean, there's not even a, it's not even a real thing, but it's invented. And then the gap and the shame. Have you just received endless upon endless of people saying, I got divorced and I can't recover right. I lost my dad and I can't recover right or whatever it is. I'm sure because when I read your book, I've never had a cancer diagnosis, but there were so many moments, particularly in my like last two and three years where I have also experienced a lot of loss and just thought this feels like the truest thing I ever read. And this is how it feels like to be on that couch, still like with the covers over your head going, why can't I get this right? Like, why can't I recover better? Or this is not what my life was supposed to look like. And, you know, we live in a culture where we're told that if we only, you know, work hard enough, we can live the life that we've always wanted to live. I've been told that my whole life. Right. So have I. And I have worked and worked and worked. And, you know, there's that saying when, you know, what is that? When you make plans. uh, Sure. God laughs, whatever. Laughs. Right. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I think as a culture, We're so focused on positivity, on self-improvement, on living our best lives, which is all wonderful. But I think the unintended consequence of that is that we don't learn to live in discomfort. We don't know how to coexist with suffering. We don't know how to be on the couch, unable to get up without feeling immense shame or that we're somehow doing it wrong. And my hope in writing this book is that it could be an honest companion and what it is not to move on from the hard things. Cause I think that's a myth. We don't get to skip over the hard work of healing and grieving, but instead learning how to coexist with pain, how to coexist with disappointment and to move forward with it. Mm. I'm curious if you found the writing process of the book a tool toward that end. I I have a quote framed on my desk from a leader. His name was Henry Nowen. He's passed since, but he said, I do not yet know what is in my heart, but I trust it will emerge as I write. And I have found that to be true as a writer, that sometimes the fingers on the keyboard and the process of pecking it out sentence by sentence, I find it. 
I find the story. I find my feelings. I, in some cases, find a way to process the thing and get on the other side of it. Was that the, because also let's be fair. Also writing a book is hard sometimes. And you're just like, why did I say I wanted to do this? Why? Why can't somebody else help me? Like nobody can do it but you. And so it's a love hate, right? Was that your experience? Absolutely. Like I always say, I will never speak ill of another book because I know how hard it is to actually see one through to the end. And I have the utmost awe and respect for anyone who undertakes the project of writing a book. So bravo to anyone who's done it, anyone who's attempting to do it, because it really, you know, forces you to confront all of yourself, your wildest dreams and expectations of what it could be, and then the limitations of your ability to execute it, which is pretty devastating and humbling. (laughs) Wasn't it? But I, you know, I'm similar to you. I... I only understand what I'm thinking and feeling until I write it out. It's part of why I write all my first drafts by hand, oftentimes in the journal. And I always Mm. describe it as the tyranny of the backspace bar. Like I don't want the ease of editing myself that comes with writing on a laptop. I really try to force myself in those first drafts. And of course, there's a big difference between the draft of a book you write for yourself and the draft that you share with the world. But yeah, I, I similar to you, have a post-it note on my desk that's sort of my my guiding light in terms of what I'm trying to do when I write. And it says, if you want to write a good book, write what you don't want others to know about you. And if you want to write a great book, write what you don't want to know about yourself. Ugh, God. (laughs) Which is not fun. Ugh, it's the most unforgiving mirror being a writer, being a true writer, if you choose it, if you choose to be one. Mm -hmm. And when I feel uncomfortable and vulnerable and exposed, I know that I'm getting close to something akin to the truth. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. I'd like to hear you talk more about, and this is a huge, broad question, so you can drill in here however you'd like to, but I'd just like to hear you talk about what you've learned, maybe what you've discovered, what you've released, perhaps, about maybe what you once thought of as your identity. And then this is, nobody expects to have cancer in their early 20s. Nobody. 
nobody. And it so fundamentally altered your life. I'd like to just hear you talk a little bit about your sense of what identity means and, and if it changed for you. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was 22, I was a planner. I was a doer. I was someone who had a one-year plan and a five-year plan and a 10-year plan. And all of that went up in smoke when I got sick. And I realized that for much of my adult life, all four years of it at that point, I really summed up my sense of self based on achievement, based on my work ethic, based on my output, based on my grade point average. And all of that was stripped away from me when I got sick. I lost my job overnight. I was dependent on my parents, as dependent as I'd been since elementary school. I lost my independence, even my ability to shower alone, which for someone who doesn't like to ask for help, who had always thought of myself as fiercely independent, that was a hard pill to swallow. And in that first year, I was angry. I was bitter. I couldn't go on Instagram because I would see, you know, photos of my friends starting their careers and going on dates and traveling the world and all the other big and small milestones of adulthood. And I had no idea who I was. I felt like I was nothing in a way. And I'm not going to be Pollyannish about it because it was truly the hardest year of my life. I think it was also useful and that it forced, you know, it stripped me down to my most savage elemental self. And it forced me to figure out who I was outside of all of that. And instead of having to-do lists, I started writing to-feel lists from myself. And that's still something that I do. And, you know, I had about maybe two or three hours of usable energy. And when you have very limited energy, it quickly reshuffles your priorities and you have to get really clear about what's important to you. And to my surprise, it wasn't the things on those lists of who I hope to become. It was really simple things. It was about my family. It was about doing the things like writing that I had thought about a lot, that I talked about a lot, but I hadn't actually pursued. It was about really culling my friend list and figuring out who made me feel good and who I could have a nurturing reciprocal relationship with. And those were hard lessons to learn at 22, but really important ones. And I think in a way, course corrected my trajectory. And I like to think that eventually I would have arrived to those same conclusions. But now with the distance of time, I see that what I initially thought of as a complete loss of my identity was actually an invitation to get closer to my truer self. And that's what these hard moments do for us, right? It doesn't automatically happen. It's an invitation. You can choose when you're in that liminal space between no longer and not yet to shut down, to shudder your heart, to stay bitter, or you can look around and start to observe who you are and what you're learning about yourself and your place in the world. And you can live into the possibilities of that knowledge. Mm, That's lovely. I've found that to be incredibly true. I'm a lot older than you, but 
I was married for 26 years. So, I mean, that was just my entire adult life. Like literally I got married before I was even an adult. And so that was my huge pillar of identity. I mean, huge, like marriage and family. And I lost my marriage at the beginning of the pandemic. And I just remember thinking, well, I've spent a good damn long time talking in front of my community about marriage. Like this was the thing that I thought I'd have forever. I was, I was going to be a lifer, of course, like my parents, like my in-laws and didn't expect to lose that. And this sense of identity that got so rocked at the midway point of my life. I'm like, what in the world? And I felt that self-preservation instinct to just shut down around it, like build a wall around it, figure out how to get these other pieces to flourish and then put those forward facing. I know how to do that. And I just knew I can't, I cannot live that disintegrated. I just cannot, maybe for a minute, maybe for a spell. And so for me, that was an invitation to, to get really curious about my own identity. And also it was an invitation to use vulnerability as a connector and really as a healer. And you've done that too. You did that in your story. You did that in real time. You're doing it now. That sense of like, gosh, what would happen if we said these things out loud? (laughs) What would happen if we said not just the parts that draw people in and go, oh, we love you, but also the parts where you're like, I'm being real gross right now. And this is a dark side of Jen Hatmaker that you guys don't know. And I found it to be powerful beyond measure. Has that been your experience? Because you have literally been vulnerable toward the world now from the jump. Well, and I'll tell you, it doesn't come easily to me. Mm, I, like you, am a very guarded person. I'm a very private person. I'm most comfortable when I have my armor tightly and snugly fitted around me. And I have to work through that every single day. And I'll never forget the last column I wrote for The Life Interrupted. I had taken a very long hiatus because my personal life no longer synced up with my public self. And I didn't know how to bridge those gaps. I knew that I couldn't pretend that everything was okay because I'm not a good liar, but I also wasn't willing to be vulnerable. And so instead I just shut down. And I remember that very last column and I wrote the truth of what happened when I finished my cancer treatment which is that when I was discharged from the hospital, I came home to an empty apartment. My then boyfriend had moved out while I was in the hospital. And earlier that month, I'd lost my best friend, Melissa, whom I met in cancer treatment. And I was so sad and so angry that the first thing I did when I got home was I sat on my kitchen floor with my hospital bracelet still wrapped around my wrist And I lit a cigarette and smoked it because that's the headspace I was in. And I wrote that in this column and I showed it to a couple of people and they were like, oh no, you can't say that. that. Mm -hmm. No, you're writing a column for the well section of the New York Times. Like you cannot (laughs) write about being a recovering cancer patient. Everyone will hate you. And I published it anyway, because I didn't know how else to move forward without telling the truth. It didn't even feel like a choice anymore. My shame, my sense of isolation was going to kill me if I didn't do that, which sounds melodramatic maybe, but that's the truth. Oh no, it doesn't. It is the truth. 
Mm. And to my surprise, that column was the most widely read, widely shared column of anything I've written. And I got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages and letters and DMs from people who were like, thank you. My recovery has also been full of shame and self-destruction, et cetera, et cetera. And so that taught me a really important lesson. And going into this book, I tried to be as vulnerable as I could. And I've learned this lesson again and again. I learned it on the road trip that I took when I was recovering from treatment, where I went and visited some of the strangers who'd written to me in response to that column, some of whom were recovering from cancer, but many of whom had never been sick. Some who were recovering from a divorce. Some, you know, I visited a guy on death row who'd been in solitary confinement in Texas for more than half his life and on and on. And what I learned is, you know, when we dare to be vulnerable, we learn again and again that we're more alike than we are different. That's right. That's right. 100%. You really missed Melissa. Like, because you're such a gifted writer, the through line for all of us as your readers were your relationships. Those just sung. I mean, they just leapt off the page. Those, the dynamics, the complications, the beauty, the confusion, just all the relationships pulled forward because relationships are what we have in common and in such similar ways. And so we really grieved your losses, your relational losses, like we were there. And I was really struck by how profoundly you write about the people in your life, the ones that had always been there, the ones that you met along the way, the ones that you lost, the ones that you were still grieving and still trying to sort out. And so I I thank you for that. I thank you for that piece, that connective tissue that you gave us, because some of those relationships were really hard and not easy to write about. I am sure. Like, was there ever a moment where you were like, I can't write this? Like, this isn't going to be on print. It's going to live. It's going to live in perpetuity. Like, did you have to make some hard choices to be like, I just have to steer into the curve here? Absolutely. And, you know, I had to follow some very clear rules for myself. There are many stories that would have made for a much juicier book that are not in there because they weren't my stories to tell. And I had to be very clear about writing from my side of the door and saving the sharpest knives for myself, which I think as memoirists, that's our ethical responsibility. And it also, you know, in sharing those manuscript pages before the book came out, allowed for some really hard but important conversations. And I appreciate you saying that because I, you know, more so than being a story about cancer, I really think of this book as a story about love about love forged, about love lost, about complicated love, and how all of that gets heightened against the backdrop of an interruption like illness. That is that that was the impact. And that's the stuff of life. It is. It's stuff of life. That is, we can swap out the circumstances for a thousand things, but the rest of that, that's the stuff of life. And I think that's why your book has one of the reasons why your book has been so incredibly resonant 
obviously as authors, we're always hoping that our books do well. We're hoping to receive the feedback that is positive. We hope our readers love it. But I mean, you couldn't have probably guessed that your book would just make such a splash in the pond like it did. Has that been overwhelming, exciting, daunting, thrilling? All the things. I remember on the eve of my pup date, just being curled up under my comforter and being like, it's terrible. I do. Totally. I want to take it back. I hope nobody reads it. And that's the part I think people don't talk about. Like, of course you have your moments of having wild dreams for your book and what it can do. But now the way I think about it, and I don't have children, so correct me if this is an incorrect metaphor, but I feel like as a writer, when you're writing a book, that's your baby, you know, you're helping it grow. When it's time for it to go out in the world, it's like you're sending your baby off to college. You're there 100%. to support it, but it's no longer yours. No, and it has people its might own not life. like your baby. They might that's say right. things about your baby based on how it's behaving. So, that's oh, right. I know. I've used this exact metaphor. It's a perfect <laughs> one. Okay, good. I'm glad. So yeah, it feels separate from me now. It has its own life and that's not such a bad thing. Yeah. It's so well-deserved. All of the attention it is has received all the awards it has received being on the list. All of it is deserved. You're my favorite combination of writer, which is memoir, I think is my favorite genre. If I was forced to give an answer, if I was just forced So there are some fascinating memoirs that are written, okay, the story is the the main part and the person telling the story isn't necessarily a writer, they just have the story to tell. But then there's a genre of memoir where the memoirist has a story to tell and she's an incredible writer. That is where the magic is. That's my favorite thing to happen where I'm like, oh, look at the sentences. Oh, they're so lovely. (laughs) Oh, the writing is so good. This is so like pleasing to read. And like, that's you. You are an incredible writer with an incredible story. And so, I mean, I just want you to continue to do this forever and ever. Can you talk about what you're working on, what you're dreaming up, what you'd love to do next? Do we get to see it? Do we get to be a part of whatever you're building? So Jen, I've had a really strange year because a year ago after being in remission for almost a decade, I learned that my leukemia was back and I underwent a second bone marrow transplant, which was obviously pretty devastating and not at all how I expected to be celebrating this new victorious chapter of my life. And so, no, I mean, this is what happens. Interestingly enough, when I was undergoing my second bone marrow transplant last year, I was on so many medications that my vision was blurred and I couldn't write. And so what I decided to do instead, inspired by my friend, Melissa, was to start painting with watercolors. And I discovered this whole new love for a genre that I'm a total novice at. And and part of that love is the love of beginner's mind. You don't have ego. You're not trying to do it for any purpose other than your own enjoyment and joy. So the thing I'm hoping to do now is a book of paintings and essays. And I probably shouldn't even say this out loud because I'm still in the very early stages of dreaming it up. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. It's been really unexpected. And I think 
you know, again, this is the lesson I learn over and over, which is as wonderful as it is to have plans, as wonderful as it is to be brimming with ambition, sometimes having totally unstructured time where it feels like the ceiling has caved in, in that absence of what you thought was going to happen, there's space for something new to emerge. And so as hard as it is to accept that when you're in it, and I struggle to accept it all the time in this year where I'm back in cancer treatment, I'm trying to stay open to new possibility, to new learnings. And this time around is different. I will be in treatment indefinitely. And so my work now is to live in that ocean of not knowing. And to some extent, that's all of our work, right? Being a human is a terminal condition for all of us. I just live a little closer to that truth than maybe most do right now. But yeah, so I'm working on that book. I write a newsletter every week, which has been fun because I have trouble, you know, sitting at my desk for long stretches of time. But I send these little missives through my newsletter called the Isolation Journals. That's all about life interruptions and creativity. And that's been keeping me focused and keeping me going. But it's been a year also of simplifying everything, which it turns out is not such a bad thing. You're right. That's lovely. I can't wait to see your work and to see this blend of two different arts because writing is an art, obviously, and painting. Like what a beautiful thing to blend and to create. And thanks for sharing that. I mean, whatever you create has a brilliance to it. And so I will just look forward to seeing what this even looks like. What does it mean to do a book with watercolors and essays? I don't know. You're going to show us. I don't know either. Yeah. 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 I look forward to you figuring what out, whatever that is and giving it to the world. That's thrilling. And I'm sorry that it's been a year of treatment again, of transplants again. And if you're comfortable, what... What has this been like for you the second time around? Because at this point, you have muscle memory for these procedures, for the process. You have a little bit of sense, at least, of expectation. Has that made it harder or easier or neither? I'd say both. You know, I think the good thing is that I know a lot. And the bad thing is that I know a lot. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So that's the simplest way I can put it. But I do think, you know, there's so much I learned from going through this 10 years ago. And as corny and cliched as it sounds, it's that it takes a village to get through something like this. And so the thing I'm maybe proudest of in the last decade of my life is the community that I cultivated after the first time that I was sick. And people, you know, throw around the term resilience a lot. And when they ask me, where I find my resilience, it's in my community. And I think the key there is that you can't just, you know, create a community or expect to rely on your community right when something terrible happens. You have to build that long before you need it. You have to show up with generosity before you can ask for help. 
And so I feel so fortunate in that I've been surrounded by more love this time around than I ever could have expected, not just from my family and friends and readers, but my nurses who I've known now for a decade and my doctors. And it's really, you know, I keep saying to my husband, John, I'm like, in so many ways, this has been the worst year of my life. And it's also been my year of love Mm. and what a beautiful thing. Mm. That is a beautiful thing. Before I let you go, we always love to hear from our authors, you know, because writers are readers. What are you loving right now? Have you, what have you read lately that you love? It could either be like a sort of a recent book that you read that you can't quite think about or an old timey, like this is the one I always recommend or both, <laughs> but what do you, what do you like right now? What are you reading? Okay. I'm always reading a couple of different things. I actually, this is so dorky. I make reading lists for myself. Not for dorky. Whatever new You're literally talking to a on. book club. We are okay, the okay. epitome of the book nerds of which you <laughs> mentioned. Yes. Okay. Okay. So I usually make a reading list for myself. One might be related to the thing that I'm writing. One book might be related to something I'm personally grappling with, et cetera, et cetera. So the three books I'm reading right now are Heads of the Colored People by my mm. friend Nafisa Thompson Spires. What a title. It was long listed for a national book award. She's just a beautiful, brilliant writer. The second is Wolfish by Erica Berry, who's a debut author. It just came out. It's beautiful. It's great. If you loved Wild, then you will oh. love Wolfish. Uh-huh. And the third book was recommended to me by my friend Liz Gilbert, and it's called Nonviolent Communication. Nice. Apparently, everyone in the world has heard of it except for me. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it's game changing, and I feel like it should be taught at every undergraduate university because it's just the basics of communication that you'd think we'd all have mastered by adulthood and yet feel like total revelations. So I have seen that book everywhere, of course, and haven't read it, but that might just be the nudge. Also, I love it when a title is like, look, we're not messing around here. Let me just put it right on the nose. This is what yes. this book is about. Nonviolent communication. That's right. No fussy words. Like I don't That's need right. to like zhuzh this stuff. It, yeah, it yeah. is what it is. <laughs> exactly. Straight to the point. Straight to the point. Okay. <laughs> well, we are huge fans over here in my corner of the world. And absolutely grateful that you chose to share your story and your gifts with us both. And your book was just powerful and beautiful. It was hopeful and it was true. And it's created so much discussion in my community. I mean, we are, we're circling around so many themes that you included that feel common to all of us, really, no matter what. And we've got obviously a lot of folks for whom cancer has touched both personally and their families. So obviously that's a huge conversation, but we are just moved by your book. And so thank you. And thank you for coming in here to spend just a little bit of time with me slash us. We'll just be like lined up around the block whenever the watercolor slash essay book comes out. <laughs> so <laughs> thank <laughs> Let's you, make Jen. a new genre. You're welcome. And a big thank you to your community. I mean, it's every writer's honor to be read and it's not something I take lightly. So thank you for sharing my book and thank you for your light. You're wonderful and I adore you. Same. 